This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. Amen. That's a great one. Thank you all for leading us in worship each week. It is wonderful to have Merle Kay back there on the piano. <laughs> oh, we appreciate you all so much. So if you're new today, we are in a series on David. I know like, I think we had 40-some people from our church this week that went up to Lancaster to see uh, David. And so you guys, your pumps should be primed to, today. And you got an extra night's sleep on top of it. So everybody ready to engage and fired up. I'm fired up, ready to get into it. So we're going to start in 1 Samuel 31. If you take your Bibles and turn to the last chapter of 1 Samuel today is where we're going to begin. We're talking about glorifying the forever king. 1 Samuel chapter 31. So kind of to bring you up to speed if you're, if you're new, last week we saw in chapter 24 where David spares Saul's life. And at the end of that chapter, the two men have this very heartfelt emotional exchange and it kind of ends with some very gracious words from Saul considering he had been trying to kill David but at the end of the chapter Saul comes around and he, he says to David I've been wrong you know I know that that you are going to be king and and you know you kind of want the two men to get together at that point but you know True repentance is seen in deeds, and despite Saul's gracious words to David at the end of chapter 24, he still does not relinquish power. He's still clinging on to, to, to power, and this has tragic results that we read about at the beginning of 1 Samuel 31. So take your copy of God's word and follow along. Let's look at verses one through four. The Philistines fought against Israel and Israel's men fled from them and were killed on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines pursued Saul and his sons and killed his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua. When the battle intensified against Saul, the archers found him and severely wounded him. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and run me through with it, or these uncircumcised men will come and run me through and torture me. But his armor bearer would not do it because he was terrified. Then Saul took his sword and fell on it. And so just like that, Saul and his sons are all dead in a single day. You know, we don't know what a day is going to bring forth in our own lives. I mean, human life is fragile. And we don't like to think about it. 
but our lives could end any day or Christ could come any day and we would be standing before God. Are we ready for that? You know, James speaks of people who kind of do life as if God does not exist. They, they make all of their plans and everything and, and, and they, they just go about life as if, they're gonna, as if they're immortal, as if they're gonna live forever, as if there is no God. James says in James 4, 13 and 14, come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will travel to such and such a city and spend a year, a year there and do business and make a profit. Yet, you do not know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be, for you are like a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes. You know, our lives could end any day. Christ could return any day. Are you ready for that day? Let's continue um, looking at the, the text here. Look at, look at verse Samuel 31 and uh, beginning with verse eight. The next day when the, Philippine, the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons dead on Mount Gilboa. They cut off Saul's head, stripped off his armor, and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to spread the good news in the temples of their idols and among the people. Then they put his armor in the temple of the Ashtoreths and hung his body on the wall of Beth Shan. Now, if you visit Israel, you will no doubt visit Beth Shan. It's a major site, beautiful Roman ruins there. But there's nothing beautiful about what happens here. They cut off Saul's head as well as the heads of his his sons, and they hang their bodies on the wall of Beth Shan. Just, just brutal. And notice the theological significance of what happens here. Look at verse 9 again. It says that they sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to spread the good news in the temples of their idols and among the people. Do you see how the name of God, the glory of God is being defamed here? Do you see how these, these lost people, these pagan people, are being deceived into thinking that their false gods have won this victory? And so 1 Samuel ends in really a horrifying kind of a way. I mean, you've got the tragic deaths of Saul and that Jonathan, David's best friend, who'd been like a brother to him, Saul's other sons, and, all, and their deaths, the deaths of Saul's sons, were set up by their father's disobedience. Parents, this is such a word for us because when we get into sin, when we don't trust God and obey him, there is going to be collateral damage. And our kids are going to pay the price for that. There's the fact that the nation has been brought low. The, the, the Philistines at this point are ascendant and, and running rampant. Worst of all, 
the name of God is being dragged through the dirt. This is how 1 Samuel ends. Now, let's fast forward to 2 Samuel. Turn over to 2 Samuel chapter 1, just a page. And really, 2 Samuel 1 is a direct continuation of 1 Samuel 31. And so, let's look here at verses 1 through 4 of 2 Samuel 1. After the death of Saul... David returned from defeating the Amalekites and stayed at Ziklag two days. On the third day, a man with torn clothes and dust on his head came from Saul's camp. When he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David asked him, where have you come from? He replied to him, I've escaped from the Israelite camp. What was the outcome? Tell me, David asked him. The troops fled from the battle, he answered. Many of the troops have fallen and are dead. Also, Saul and his son, Jonathan, are dead. Now imagine this moment in David's life. We've seen in the series that Jonathan had been David's best friend. He had been like this incredibly close brother to David, been like a brother to him, and, and for at least part of his early life, Saul had been like a father to him. And now, in, in one moment of time, David hears they're all gone. They're all dead. He must have been speechless, but when he can gather himself, he begins to question this, this messenger. Pick it up here in verse 5. David asked the young man who had brought him the report, how do you know Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, he replied, and there was Saul leaning on his spear. At that very moment, the chariots and the cavalry were closing in on him. When he turned around and saw me, he called out to me, so I answered, I'm at your service. He asked me, who are you? I told him, I'm an Amalekite. Then he begged me, stand over me and kill me, for I'm mortally wounded, but my life still lingers. So I stood over him and killed him, because I knew that after he had fallen, he couldn't survive. I took the crown that was on his head, and the armband that was on, was on his arm, and I brought them here to my Lord. Now this guy is lying. He didn't kill Saul. But he's lying to David and telling him that he killed Saul because he thinks that because Saul had been trying to kill David, that him killing Saul is going to somehow lead to his promotion. But in reality, it's going to lead to his destruction. Pick it up here in, um, in verse 11. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them. And all the men with him did the same. They mourned, wept, and fasted until the evening for those who died by the sword, for Saul, his son Jonathan, and the Lord's people, and the house of Israel. David inquired of the young man, young man who had brought him the report, where are you from? I'm the son of a resident alien, he said, I'm an Amalekite. David questioned him, how is it that you were not afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David summoned one of his servants, and said to him, come here and kill him. The servant struck him, and he died. For David had said to the Amalekite, your blood is on your own head. 
because your own mouth testified against you by saying, I killed the Lord's anointed. You see, this guy did not understand David's, David's values and specifically his loyalty to Saul. Despite the fact that Saul was trying to kill him, David is loyal to the crown because he is loyal to God. Because God had put Saul in that position. And so it was all about David's loyalty to, to, to God, to the ultimate king. You know, sometimes as Americans, because we live in a republic and not a monarch, monarchy, we, we, we sometimes tend to struggle with all the, the royal language and the, the royal protocols of Scripture. And sometimes we can sort of screen out all that language about the kingdom of, of God. And, and sometimes even, you know, with, when it comes to, to, to Christ, you know, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ means Messiah, anointed one, king. And the Christian life is about joyful, trusting allegiance to King Jesus. One day in 1974, there was a young Japanese adventurer who was kneeling over a campfire on the Philippine island of, of Lubang. And this young Japanese guy looks up and, and coming out of the jungle at him is this incredibly strange sight. It's, it's, this, it's this soldier that's, that's dressed in, in, in a World War II era Japanese army uniform, rifle in hand. And so they began to talk and he finds out that this guy who had been coming at him out of the jungle with the rifle was a Japanese soldier who had been left on the Philippines 30 years before at the end of World War II. His commanding officers told him, you stay here and wage a guerrilla warfare until Japanese forces come back for you. And so he had been doing that for three decades. Four of his comrades had died in a firefight with Philippine police, and he was the only one who remained. But he was absolutely committed, and he said that he would not surrender unless Japanese authorities came and read him formal orders to surrender. They got a hold of his commanding officer from World War II who was still living, and three weeks later, his commanding officer came to the Philippines and, and read this soldier a formal order, ordering him to surrender, which he did. Amazing. 30 years in the jungle. One writer says this about it. The, the man's name was Hiro Onoda. Onoda and his comrades were unswerving in their loyalty to the emperor. Like the honed edge of a samurai sword, the meaning of life and death was singular. Allegiance. And of course the tragedy is that 
this Japanese soldier and his comrades, their loyalty was to a, a, a brutal regime that was basically just sacrificing them for their own imperialistic ambitions. But we are called to be loyal to a gracious king who has sacrificed himself for us. King Jesus. The Christian life is about trusting loyalty to him. Now, let's fast forward to 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel 7, which is one of the most important chapters in the Bible. It's where we find the Davidic covenant. One biblical scholar, Tim Chester, says this about 2 Samuel 7. Chester writes, what happens in this chapter is alluded to either explicitly or implicitly all over the pages of the Bible. The words spoken by God in this chapter are still shaping human history today. And we're gonna look at 2 Samuel 7 in four parts. First of all, the setting. The setting which we see in verse one. When the king had settled into his palace and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies. Okay, so at this point, David has become king. He's there in the palace in Jerusalem and things are at rest, they're at peace. I mean, we've seen in this series, right, David has been on the run. His life has constantly been under threat. They've been at war with the Philistines. All these things have been happening. And finally, he's at rest. And notice that it says here in verse 1 that the Lord had given him rest. Because rest and peace in our lives come from God. Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Jesus says, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. You know, many people think that in order to come to Christ, I've got to get rid of my burdens. I've got to, you know, I've got to get my life right and take care of all this stuff, and then I'll come. No, it doesn't work like that. We come to Jesus first with our burden, as we are. I love what Gavin Ortland says in his beautiful book, Gentle and Lowly. Gavin says, you don't need to unburden and collect yourself and then come to Jesus. Your very burden is what qualifies you to come. You just come to Jesus as you are with your burdens and he can handle your burdens because he's already handled your greatest burden, which is the burden of your sin, which he atoned for on the cross. But the setting here is that David is at at rest, which God has provided. All right, the second thing that we see is a provision from God. A provision from God. So, David, is it, is it rest at this point? And he's got some space to breathe and to think. 
And one of the things that comes to David's mind is that, you know, here I am living in this palace in Jerusalem and the Ark of the Covenant is still in a tabernacle, which was like a tent. And so David thinks, that's not right. It needs to be housed in something grand. This, uh, I, want, I need to build a temple for the Lord. And so let's pick it up here in, in verse 2. The king said to the prophet Nathan, Look, I'm living in a cedar house while the ark of God sits inside tent curtains. And you can just really sense some guilt and even some embarrassment on David's part here. And so he's talking to Nathan one day. This is the first time we meet Nathan, who's a big part of David's story. He was a prophet. He was like a spiritual counselor to David. And so he's talking to Nathan one day, and he's like, look, this isn't right. Ark's inside of this tent. I'm living here in this palace. I need to build a grand house for the Lord. And so Nathan's like, that sounds good. Verse 3, Nathan told the king, go ahead and do all that is on your mind, for the Lord is with you. But something's missing here. They didn't ask God how he felt about it. And so that night, God comes to Nathan with this message to deliver to David. And pick it up here in verse 4. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go to my servant David and say, this is what the Lord says, are you to build me a house to dwell in? From the time I brought the Israelites out of Egypt until today, I have not dwelt in a house. Instead, I've been moving around with a tent as my dwelling. In all my journeys with the Israelites, have I ever spoken a word to one of the tribal leaders of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, asking, why haven't you built me a house of cedar? So now this is what you were to say to my servant David. This is what the Lord of armies says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have destroyed all your enemies before you. I will make a great name for you like that of the greatest on the earth. I will designate a place for my people Israel and plant them so that they may live there and not be disturbed again. Evildoers will not continue to oppress them as they have done. Ever since the day I ordered judges to be over my people Israel, I will give you rest from all your enemies. So God here kind of turns the tables on David. You know, David says, I, Lord, I'm going to build you this temple. And, and it's like God is saying to David, David, no, instead of you providing this for me, what you really need to understand is what I've already provided for you. Let's go back to verse five here. God says, go to my servant David and say, this is what the Lord says, are you to build me a house? <laughs> Key words there, you and me. Are you to build me a house to dwell in? It's interesting, even after the temple was built by David's son, Solomon, what did Solomon say after the temple was, was built? 
First Kings 8, 27 tells us, Solomon says, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Still, David's desire to build the temple, it was a noble desire. But it was not what was needed at that moment. God is saying to him here, no, what is really needed right now is not for you to do something for me. What's needed is for you to understand what I have done for you. What's already been done. And that's what a lot of us need to understand. You know, some years ago, it's a big fad in the Christian community. Everybody was wearing the WWJD bracelet. You know, what would Jesus do? I sometimes think that the question that we really need to ask is, what has Jesus done? Because I find that so many believers are fuzzy on what Jesus has done. They're too fuzzy on the basics of the gospel. And the foundation of the Christian life is built on the gospel. And so no matter how far along we get in the Christian life, we should never get over the gospel. We should plunge deeper and deeper into the glories of the meaning of the cross and the resurrection and the finished work of Christ on our behalf because that's the foundation of the Christian life, what Jesus has already done. It's interesting you know, when, when Paul prays for the church at Ephesus in, in Ephesians 1, what does he pray? It's like, Lord, open, open our eyes to what? To what you've already done. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the mighty working of his strength. Like, Lord, open our eyes. Open our eyes to see the glory of our inheritance, what we've already been given, what you've already done. That's what God is saying here to David. A provision from God. Third, a house for David. A house for David. Let's look at the the second part of verse 11 here. The Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make a house for you. See, David had been like, Lord, I'm going to build you a house. And God is like, "Mm, it's not exactly going to work like that. Actually, I'm going to build you a house, David but it's not gonna be a house made of stone or bricks or mortar. It's gonna be something far more significant. Let's look at verses 12 through 16 here. God says, when your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. 
I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with a rod of men and blows from mortals. But my faithful love will never leave him as it did when I removed it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and kingdom will endure before me forever. And your throne will be established forever. Tim Chester says this, David had assumed that he would build a home for God, but the reality is that God is creating a home for his people. Now think about the meaning of the temple. What is the temple of God for us as followers of Christ? Where is it? What is it? First of all, the temple is in the body of every blood-bought, spirit-indwelled believer. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. Second, the temple is the corporate body of Christ. Paul is writing to the church in 1 Corinthians 3, and he is warning those who are creating disunity in the church. And what does he say about the church here in 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17? Don't you yourselves know that you are God's temple? You are God's temple? the people of the church, and that the Spirit of God lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and that is what you are. The church, not the thing we call a church that is a physical building, but the real church, the, the people of God. It's the, the temple of, of God. Now let's plunge into the, the glory of these promises in the Davidic covenant. Look at verses 12 and, and 13 again here. God, God says to David, when your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom Forever, look at verse 16. It says, your house and kingdom will endure before me forever. And your throne will be established forever. Now, in the near term, this is fulfilled in David's son Solomon, you know, who was going to go on and build the, the temple. But this language pushes far beyond Anything that Solomon or any mere human being could fulfill. He's talking here about a forever king. A forever kingdom. That's King Jesus. And when the angel Gabriel tells Mary that she's going to give birth to Jesus, he links it to the Davidic covenant. Luke chapter 1 
Gabriel says to Mary, now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Because you see, both David and Solomon, Israel's greatest kings, they're both going to die. But King Jesus defeated death. He is risen, and his kingdom has no end. King Jesus was crucified for sinners like you and me, buried, risen from the dead, ascended, exalted at the right hand of God, and he is returning as King of kings and Lord of lords, and he will reign forever and ever. And the Bible says in Philippians 2 that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that will either be the greatest moment of your life or the worst moment of your life depending on whether or not you know him as your savior and king. Do you know him? Are you ready for that moment? The fourth thing that we see in 2 Samuel 7 is the promise that leads to praise. I mean, just look at what David says after Nathan delivers this message. Pick it up in verse 17. Nathan reported all these words and this entire vision to David. Then King David went in, sat in the Lord's presence, and said, Who am I, Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? What you have done so far was a little thing to you, Lord God. For you have also spoken about your servant's house in the distant future. And this is a revelation for mankind, Lord God. What more can David say to you? You know your servant, Lord God. Because of your word and according to your will, you have revealed all these great things to your servant. This is why you are great, Lord God. There is no one like you, and there is no God besides you, as all we have heard confirms. And who is like your people Israel? God came to one nation on earth in order to redeem a people for himself, to make a name for himself, and to perform for them great and awesome acts, driving out nations and their gods before your people you redeem for yourself from Egypt. You establish your people Israel to be your own people forever, and you, Lord, have become their God. Now, Lord God, fulfill the promise forever that you have made to your servant and his house. Do as you have promised so that your name will be exalted forever when it is said, the Lord of armies is God over Israel. The house of your servant David will be established before you since you, Lord of armies, God of Israel, have revealed this to your servant when you said, I will build a house for you. Therefore, your servant has found the courage to pray this prayer to you. Lord God, you are God. Your words are true and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, please bless your servant's house so that it will continue before you forever. For you, Lord God, have spoken. And with your blessing, your servant's house will be blessed forever. I mean, what can you say to that? 
I mean, David is just pouring out the praise of his heart. Let me, let me encourage you in your relationship with the Lord and, and specifically in your time with God each day, which I hope you have that time when you just, you block off for you and the Lord. Begin with praise. Begin with just praise to God. Sometimes in prayer, it helps us if we have a track to run on, a structure. One that I found really helpful is the acrostic acts, A-C-T-S, easy to remember. Begin with adoration, praise, just praising God for who he is. That puts a lot of things in life in perspective. And then confession. We want to keep short accounts of our sins so that it doesn't spiral out of control. And then thanksgiving, cultivating an attitude of gratitude, counting our blessings. And then supplication, presenting our needs before the Lord. And you know what? God knows our needs before we even ask, but he commands us to ask. Why? So that our trust and our faith in him develop as we see God answering prayer. And if you're here and you don't know Christ, the first most important prayer that you can pray is to ask Christ to be your Savior and Lord. We could be before him at any moment. Are you going to stand before the king in your own righteousness? That's not going to cut it. Isaiah 64, 6 says that even at our best, that our righteousness is like filthy rags. And we can stand before the king clothed in his perfect righteousness because he lived the perfect life that we could never live. And he died the death we should have died for our sins on the cross. And when we turn to King Jesus and we trust him, he clothes us in his royal robes of righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5 And verse 21 says, he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Are you in Christ today? Do you know him as your Savior and Lord? You can know him. You can know him. He invites you to know him. Let's pray together. If you're here today and you're not certain that you know Jesus as your Savior and Lord, then right now, call upon him. The Bible says in Romans 10, 13, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Cry out to Jesus right now. Turn to him. Turn from yourself and trust in him. Say, Lord, I believe that you died for my sins. I know I don't deserve the salvation that Jesus has provided, but I believe that he provided it. I believe that Jesus died for my sins, that he rose from the dead. And right now, I turn to you, Lord Jesus, as my Savior, my Lord, my King. If you're here and you know that you are in Christ, Haven't we seen the glories of the gospel here in this text? 
And should this not propel us forth to share this gospel, to share this good news with others? And so, Lord, we thank you for the glories of the gospel. Lord, may we never get over it. May we never take it for granted. May we never become overly familiar with it. May our minds and hearts be blown every day with what Jesus has done for us. And may we go forth with love and joy and boldness, sharing this good news with others and living out the implications of the gospel. And Lord, for anyone here, or maybe anyone who's watching a stream today or at any point in the future, Lord, may this moment be a divine appointment. Lord, would you open hearts to respond to the gospel? Lord, would you open the eyes of hearts to see the beauty and the love of Jesus? and to turn to him and trust him. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth is now your loving father and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. 